smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken in many ways. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today we're starting a new series, Hardcore Jesus. In this episode, Matt Waldron will be speaking to us from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 47. Real freedom. Here's Matt. Last family holidays, uh, we had uh, three different friends invite us to house sit for them, which was lovely, you know, free accommodation, having a holiday. Uh, and so it meant we had to, uh, you know, pack up our stuff and, and move, you know, every week, week and a half to uh, make the most of that. And so, you know, some of the holiday was lost uh, in uh, packing up and resettling, but that was okay. What got me off guard was dealing with the recycling systems. Because we moved to three different places in three different areas that had different recycling systems, different from what I was used to. And then each family that we were house-sitting for, of course, had their personal version of that in terms of where things go. And I remember clearly at one point, uh, my wife Cheryl saying to me, look, let me just explain it to you simply. Here's the landfill, whatever we can't put somewhere else. Here's the recycling. Here are the rules for that, which was different to where we normally live. And here's the FOGO. And I was only barely coping with the change in the recycling rules. I thought, when we got to Fogo, this seems unnecessarily complicated. I mean, how many people in this area even have the skills to safely prepare blowfish? So I said, sorry, that just wasn't funny enough, or people didn't get it, doesn't matter. Uh, what is Fogo? And Cheryl said, it's food organics and garden organics. And uh, I said, why can't you just say organics? She said, I don't know, that's what they call it. I spent all week sorting things and finally I figured out the reason they call it FOGO, food organics and garden organics, is they don't want my personal odiferous organics. Uh, they, you know, this little bin goes on the kitchen counter, it doesn't go on the bathroom floor. And I thought, how hardcore do you have to be to need that exclusion policy? How, that, that, that was the question as I was putting all these things, it, it's just, how many other people, is everyone, all the neighbours doing this? I just, now don't get me wrong, I, uh, I love the natural environment, I, uh, I'm concerned about climate change, I feel a personal responsibility before God, which I think we all should, for looking after the world, but because I was just not in my usual routine, this was a, another demand put on me, uh, uh, something I had to change, and extra thing, I was just looking around, just going, do I really have to do this? It feels a bit extreme. And sometimes following Jesus can feel like that, right? We can say, well, I, I want to follow Jesus, but it just, uh, is there another thing I've got to do? Does it have to be that extreme? Is anyone else actually doing this? And sometimes to try and protect ourselves from that, we kind of get our kind of routine of how to follow Jesus. And after a while, we realize we're just coasting and it's gone a bit stale, and that can be a general feeling, or it can be when we read specific things that Jesus says and think, come on, Jesus, that's a bit hardcore. Well, the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus at his most confronting, his most challenging, his most confusing. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that we're going to be inspired and empowered and liberated by hardcore Jesus. Well, today, I just want to show you what for me is the key that unlocks all of this. I reckon if you can get your head around this one thing, 
you will be able to make sense of the most confusing things that Jesus says. I reckon if you can hold on to this, following Jesus will never get stale and no challenge will ever be too big. So here it is, Hardcore Jesus in a nutshell. The biggest obstacle in life is my own sin, but Jesus frees us from sin's deceit. That's where we're going today. The biggest obstacle in life is my own sin, but Jesus frees us from sin's self-deceit. So uh, let me show you that in Jesus' teaching. Our Bible passage today is John chapter 8, verses 31 to 47. We're going to just be concentrating there. Let me summarize what I think is going on and then show you in the passage. So, Jews in Jesus' time who believed Jesus was the Messiah tended to imagine, I think, that God's Messiah, God's Saviour King who He's going to send, is going to come and save us from our enemies. We're God's people. We're good people. We're not perfect, but we're not really the problem. Other people, other nations, our circumstances, those things are the big problem. And God sending a saviour, a messiah, to save us from that. But Jesus turns up and says, I've come to save you from your sin. So Jesus knows that Jews who believe in him are going to face a choice. At some point, they'll have to choose between trusting in being Jewish or trusting in him. So that's why I think he says the things he says and they react the way they do. So verses 31 to 32 of John chapter 8, Jesus warns Jews who believe in him the only way to freedom is to hold on to him. So John 8 from verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But because that's not what they are expecting, that's why they respond with, what's going on? Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Right, we're Jews, our sin is not our problem. So Jesus has to be more blunt. Verse 34, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Right, the popular kind of devout Jewish view would be, well, we're not perfect, we do sin. That's why we have to do the sacrifices at the temple. Uh, that's why we have God's law to restrain our sinful desires and tell us what to do. But because God's given us those things, because we're his chosen people, we're not really dominated by sin anymore. And so it's the other nations who really need sorting out. And Jesus says, no, no, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus knows that they're Jews, that they're descendants of Abraham, that the nation of Israel is God's son in a sense. But he's saying, you're not really living as God's son. You're still sinning. And so you still need saving. And Jesus is saying, that's him. If the real son sets you free, the son who belongs to God's family forever, that's who Jesus is, the eternal son. That's why they need him. Verse 37, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. What he's saying is, 
you Jews, it doesn't mean necessarily them personally, but what is going on amongst the Jews, God's people, who you reckon don't need me to save you from yourselves, do you know there's a plot to kill me going on right now? Amongst Jews, right? At some point, you Jews, who are so confident of being Jews, are going to have to decide. Are you going with being a Jew and plotting to kill me, or are you going to hold to my teaching? Which way is it going to be? That's kind of the logic of what's going on. Uh, sorry if it seems like I'm oversimplifying things, but I did want to get to that point quickly without doing any more untangling, because it is a kind of foreign, untangly little kind of argument that they have. But that's the basic idea. Uh, uh, Jesus is talking to Jews who are confident that because they're Jews, because they're God's people, they need saving from other people. They don't need saving from themselves. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're like everybody else still. You still need saving from your own sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son, right, the Son who belongs to God's family forever, if the Son sets you free, you'll be really free. Now, this has two essential implications for us. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, then you are free. And if, like me, you still sin, our sin is still the biggest obstacle in our lives. Okay? If you're trusting in Jesus, you are genuinely free. But because we still sin, that is still the biggest obstacle in our lives. So, uh, the way that Jesus can save, he says, is because he's the genuine, forever member of God's family. He's the, the ultimate son. He's the pure son. He's the real son whose uh, you know, rights and authority and responsibility are all intact and perfect. And so he has the authority to share that with other people. If Jesus says, you're in God's family, you're in God's family, right? Someone who, we, we don't uh, practice slavery, which is a good thing, but back when they did, right, a member of the family who has the authority to speak on behalf of the family can decide that someone else is adopted into the family, right? And so when you did have slaves, if you had a, a good slave master uh, who was kind, and they had a good slave who, you know, uh, worked well as part of the family and was respectful, they could develop a relationship that was like being part of the family. So then the, the head of the family, the father or the, um, the first son, could adopt that person into the family and say, you're not a slave anymore. You don't have to do what you're told because you're a slave anymore. Now we expect you to do what you're told because you respect us, and so that means you can also complain and we'll listen. Right? It means now you have a share in the property, in the inheritance, in you know, sitting at the dining table with you. You're not a slave anymore. You're part of the family. If the head of the family says that, then it's official. And how well the slave lives up to being a son or a daughter, adopting the family, that doesn't change their legal status. And uh, it might make uh, the uh, person who adopts them have second thoughts about why they did it, but it's actually really hard to take it back legally in this culture. If Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, then Jesus has brought you into God's family as a brother or sister of him, and so you are in. You are not a slave anymore. You are free. But we've still got to learn how to live that way. And because we still sin, our sin is still the biggest obstacle in our lives. If you're trusting in Jesus, 
the consequences of sin can no longer keep you out of God's family, no longer keep you from knowing God, no longer keep you from having eternal life. So, first obvious question is, are you trusting in Jesus? If you're not trusting in Jesus, what's stopping you? Is there anything we can do this morning to sort that out? Because Jesus is offering freedom forever to anyone who will trust in Him. He wants to set people free. He wants you to not to have anything stopping you from knowing God and knowing life to the full and knowing that when you die, one day Jesus will raise you to live forever in a new world. It's too good to say no to. So if you've got reasons to say no, please come and talk to me afterwards. <laughs> right? Because this is too good to not make the most of. If we're trusting in Jesus, then we are truly free. But there's also a process. And you're not going to instantly get completely changed. There might be some things that instantly change. But we will still sin to some extent. We will still do things that are wrong to some extent. We will still fail to do things that are right to some extent. And everyone who sins is a slave to sin, right? Jesus' point to them is, even though you might be better than the people around you, this is still your biggest problem. The biggest obstacle in your life is still your own sin. Not other people, not political problems, not financial circumstances, not climate change. All those things are important. But none of those is as big a problem for you as your own sin. None of those problems is as big a problem for me as my own sin. Why? Because my de sin deceives me about all those things. My sin deceives me about myself and my relationship to anything else. Uh, so the way Jesus explains this in chapter 8 of John, verses 42 to 47, is to basically say, because they sin, their loyalty is in the wrong place. Instead of being loyal to God, their sin shows that they are loyal to lies. Let me read you John chapter 8 from verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Why? You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, right, what you're claiming, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Okay, so just to re-say that again, perhaps a slightly simpler way. He's saying the reason they can't understand the truth is because they are committed to lies. Right? The reason they can't hear what God is saying is because they are committed to what the devil is saying. Not in a, a personal way. He's not calling them Satan worshippers. He's just saying there's kind of two ways of operating in the world. One is based on truth and therefore doing what's right. That's God's way. 
One is based on self-deception. Not looking at things as they really are and therefore doing what's wrong. And so Satan is the, the first of God's creatures to do that. And so he wants to influence others to do that. And Adam and Eve followed his lead and after them all humanity. And notice how uh, sin works. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. It's not holding to the truth, not seeing reality as it is, that results in doing terrible things of all sorts, even murder. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Right? He's, that's the only way he knows how to think. That's what sin is like. And Jesus says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Right? He's saying he, he's the one person that's not caught up in that. So he's the one person that can save us. When Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin, his point is that if we're sinning at all, sin is still deceiving us. That's what sin is. Sin is self-deceiving. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times in the last month, or the last couple of months, but I'm going to mention it again. The example of the Israelites in the wilderness. God had rescued them from literal physical slavery in Egypt. Uh, they had terrible conditions. They were mistreated. Uh, at one point, the Pharaoh decides it'd be better if we just kill all of the boy babies, so all the girl babies are forced to grow up and marry Egyptian men and will breed you out. It's not really good working conditions. God rescues them, incredible, does all these incredible miracles to rescue them from that situation and says, we're going to go through the desert to a new place. And almost the first thing they do, it's not very long, they start saying, you know, this is hard work, traveling through the desert. Uh, the rations that we've packed have not worked out as well as I was hoping. I can't see any way God will be able to cope with this. I think we should go back to Egypt. They were physically free, but in their heads, they were not free. They were telling themselves they were better off after abusive slave masters than trusting that God would have something to sort it out. Right? In their heads, they are still slaves. They're self-deceived. There was a, a horrible statistic that came out a couple of years ago that uh, they estimated that because of the global financial crisis in 2008, they estimated that around the world there was more than 10,000 suicides prompted as a result of the financial crisis. People lost their jobs, had their homes repossessed, were left with debts too big to pay in a lifetime. It was terrible. But the stories that really grabbed me were a couple of stories I read about very wealthy people. You know, I think one was a CEO, one was a stockbroker, something like that. You know, very wealthy people who, as far as I could understand, after the global financial crisis, were still physically and financially secure, but they lost their wealth. They lost their power, and that was too much for them. And they killed themselves, tragically, terribly. But I can't see any way to see it other than they were killed by their own self-deceit. I mean, what did they do? If I can't be rich anymore, my life is not worth living. That's a lie. If I can't be in charge of a large company anymore, my life isn't worth living. That's a lie. It's not true. Don't kill yourself. As far as I can tell, people, all, whenever someone kills themselves, as far as I can see, it's always because of a lie. If, if you have those kind of thoughts, please come and 
talk to me. Not that I'm going to call you a liar to your face. But you don't need to kill yourself. Right? It's, it's actually not that bad. It might feel that bad, but it's a lie. It's never really that bad. You know, if other people don't respect me, if I can't be in control, if I can't have the lifestyle I'm used to, aren't they all lies that we all tell ourselves some of the time? I listened to an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago. With It was an interview with a, a sign language translator. Uh, the interview was in English, that's how I could listen to it. Uh, but uh, they kind of talked about how he became a sign language translator, and part of the story was that he had grown up as a child of two deaf parents. So sign language was his first language, and he'd never thought of using that as a career. That was just how you communicate. Like, it just hadn't occurred to him as being a useful skill. Uh, but it was, well, it's useful, it's just part of life. And he also, you know, learned English, going to a school and all, all that, having other people in his life. And uh, at some point in his life, someone said to him, you know, uh, someone who was uh, deaf and spoke sign language, uh, just bumped into him and was speaking sign language to him and, and said, you know, you must be very uh, active in the sort of deaf community. And he sort of said, no, 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 I haven't quite with anyone in phrases apart from my parents, whatever. And they said, your sign language is brilliant. You should become a translator. And that was sort of the start of him becoming a translator. So one of the interviewer's questions was, uh, you know, as someone who's kind of a bit of a go-between between the deaf community and the hearing community, uh, do, do you think that deaf people feel that they need to be more extroverted than they really are with hearing people to compensate for people's social awkwardness about them being deaf? Does that question make sense? So most people who are hearing able uh, don't have a lot of experience with people who are deaf and so they don't know what to do. Do you think deaf people feel like they need to compensate for that? And his short answer was yes. This is what he said. This isn't his exact words, but he says, people who can hear want to include deaf people. But they also know that they don't know how to do it. So rather than risk doing it wrong, they just kind of give them some distance uh, so that they don't make it worse in their attempts to do the right thing. So, so you get the logic? Because we don't want to mess up including the people we want to include, we shun them to be on the safe side. And that, he didn't use the word shun, but he was pretty clear that it was not a functional strategy. So he said, look, if, if you're able to hear, and I take you out because it's a radio interview, just if you see someone who's deaf, you meet someone, just, just go and talk to them. Just throw yourself at Just do whatever you can do to try and include them. And here's the trick. Assume that the deaf person has had plenty of practice being deaf. Right? You, you don't know how to do it. I'm not going to try and give you directions of how to include deaf people in life, but I can tell you the one piece of advice that sorts it out. The deaf person knows how to handle it. Right? So just include them. Just talk to them. Just do whatever you do to say, yeah, I want to include them. But just, just throw your good intentions at them, and the deaf person will be able to sort it out. Now, the thing that happened, for me, listening to that interview, I realized... Uh, not only, I mean, I haven't had a lot of experience dealing with deaf people, but I found that very helpful to be told, yeah, they've had pl plenty of practice being deaf, just talk to them. 
I realized that I have that same strategy of shunning people because I'm scared of messing up including them. With, that's my strategy a lot of the time with people who are not Christian. What I mean is, often I don't raise the subject of spirituality or religion or Jesus because I think raising the subject too early will be worse than not raising it at all. I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I want to include this person, I want to give this information, it's very important, but it might be socially awkward and they might not be able to handle that. What I'm, what I'm assuming, secretly, is that other people are not socially capable of saying, no thanks, I don't want to talk about that. Really, I'm assuming a very low level of social dysfunction in most of the people I meet. That's kind of pathetic. I'm assuming that if I raise a difficult question about you know, life or what it's all about, that people, this person I'm talking to, I shouldn't raise it because they won't have the emotional resilience to cope with that. What's really going on is that I am sinfully concerned, too concerned, about what other people think of me. And so because of that, I've deceived myself into actually being judgmental towards other people. So there's an example I've found in my heart recently. It can be hard to find those things, because sin is self-deceiving. My sin makes me not see how I'm sinning, how I'm deceiving myself. So the great news is that freedom is found in holding on to Jesus' teaching. That, that's what he said, right? At the start of our Bible passage, John chapter 8, uh, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Like once you get the theme of the whole passage, that's an incredible promise. Right? Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I still sin. I'm still deceived by sin. But if I hold to Jesus' teaching, then I'll know the truth, and the truth will set me free. Have you ever had an experience where you, you didn't really understand something, uh, but you, you kind of followed the uh, official instructions anyway, and then it worked, and then it made sense? Um, uh, I had a great example of this, and now I've forgotten what it was. Uh, it was managing my budget. Uh, the last couple of years, Cheryl and I have been working on improving the way we manage our finances uh, because we're getting ready to build a house, as I think everyone knows the story. Leave that there. Uh, but uh, one of the things, you know, the kind of theoretical things that's kind of everyone knows obvious common sense is you should follow a budget, right? So we've got this book about how to do that, you know, make sure your budget is clear enough but not too controlling. You know, make sure your budget's going to keep you on track but not stop you from being able to enjoy your life, you know, that kind of stuff. So we had these steps about how to set that up, and we were doing that, and I felt a bit like, I know I need to do this. I wish there was another way, <laughs> you know, the, but have to do it. And then rec just recently, um, it must be about a month ago now, uh, I was shopping for some new sports shoes, and I had my, uh, my kind of intention about how much money I was going to spend, which was basically the cheapest shoes I could find because <laughs> I just needed them to you know, train and knock around. They didn't need to be 
performance shoes. And, uh, but I'm trying on all the cheap shoes, and they just felt uncomfortable. Like, it's going to be distracting that I can't concentrate on training because my feet feel weird. So finally, the, the, uh, the person in the shop who was very good said to me, look, I don't want to try and upsell you or anything, but do you want to try some more expensive shoes? Like, it's up, to, it's up to you. I said, yeah, okay, go on then. So he gets me these pair of shoes. He said, look, it seems like your feet are just a bit wider, the shape and everything, for the, the standard shoes. These, if that's the case, these are the ones I'd recommend. Put them on. They felt fantastic. They felt right. They were just twice the price of the shoes I'd been looking at. And I had this moment of just freedom that I realized because I had my finances organized, I knew exactly what the financial situation was. I knew exactly what I, if I do buy these shoes, if I don't buy these shoes, if I buy the cheap shoes, I know exactly the financial implications of that. And so I can make a simple, informed decision. This other thing, this other recreational thing that I'm saving up for, you know, that can wait a couple more months and I get to have good shoes. It was this, this, this moment of freedom that, you know, all the work of running our budget, it just works. Why haven't I been doing this my whole life? If we hold on to Jesus' teaching, then we'll know the truth, we'll put it into practice, and at some point you'll see that it works. And it'll set you free. So free, the, the important thing to see about this is, it's not just you become a Christian and now you can see yourself as you really are and so there's no reason to sin anymore and so now you're perfect. I don't know if any of you think you've had that experience, but I don't meet many Christians who think that's what's going on in their lives. We all know we still do things and then the next day or whenever you look back and go, that was wrong. It's about keeping looking at the world through Jesus' teaching. That means keep reading it, keep praying about it, keep meeting to encourage about it, and keep, you know, looking at reality through it, listening to our own thoughts through it. Um, a, one, of, uh, one of our kids found this giant spider at the grandparents' house, and uh, we needed to keep it as a pet. So we bought this plastic tub and put all, holes in it to make a terrarium and, you know, put some stuff on the ground and been trying to feed it, which if you've never tried to feed a spider is really frustrating. Anyway, so, I, you know, I feel, I realised I feel really invested in this, you know, for the sake of my child. When I went uh, to the room where it is, wh where the child sleeps, um, and there's, there's also a chest freezer in the room, and I realised that the terrarium with the spider had been left on top of the chest freezer and someone had opened the chest freezer in the night without seeing it and everything was all over the place. Thanks for the lid had stayed on and the spider was still alive, but he did look quite shell-shocked. I don't know how you tell that about a spider, but that was my honest impression. And I was, I was because I put so much effort in trying to keep this thing alive for my kid, I felt quite infuriated and I was about to go, what? And then I remembered this dim memory from the night before when I'd been packing lunches and I had made a visit to that freezer and because the child was asleep, I hadn't turned on the lights and it was me. I reckon uh, when people have their first child, if you have the opportunity, you know, if, if they've got all the, 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 the other things they need, like a cot and a million changes of clothes and a big stack, and I reckon if you run out of gift ideas, night vision goggles. Because how many times... 
as a parent, over the years, it adds up. The times I've got to go into their room, and I don't want to wake them up, and I can't see properly. And if I could just see, that would be so much better. It's too late for us now. Our kids are just about you know, past that stage. But that's with, with holding on to Jesus' teaching, it's not just having it there in your pocket. It's having it over how you experience the world, how you perceive reality. If you're not actually using it, it's not helping you. Right? Uh, turning to trust Jesus doesn't just inoculate us against the deceitfulness of sin so now that we're, we can't be deceived. No, no, we've got to always be looking at the world, listening to the world, experiencing the world through the story of Jesus. That's the way we deal with the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, Tim Chester has a great example of this in his book, Captured by a Better Vision, which is a book about uh, not looking at pornography, particularly aimed at people who are Christians and looking at pornography and want to stop. And he, he talks about looking outside the frame. When people look at uh, vision, pictures, movies, whatever, of pornography, he says, you've got to remember what's happening outside what the camera is showing you. The camera is showing you that this is wonderful and sexy and everyone's having a great time, but outside what the camera is showing you, on the rest of the set, people are vomiting and getting diseases and feeling depressed and not looking each other in the eye because of the emotional toll it's taking and in some cases, killing themselves. You've got to look outside the frame at the reality. And isn't that the case with all sin? We edit our lives. We tell ourselves a story about it to make it okay rather than looking at the whole story and seeing what we're doing wrong. We tell ourselves a story like, it wasn't my fault. I didn't have a choice. They made me do it. Anyone else in my position would have done the same. It's just the way I am. And I, you know what I'm talking about, right? Everyone does it. Holding on to the teaching of Jesus involves changing those stories that we tell ourselves to the true story that Jesus teaches us, the story about him and how he saves us, and how he loves us and how he empowers us. We're going to be looking at the teaching of Jesus for the next few weeks, but here are two stories to start with. To tell ourselves, the biggest obstacle in life is my own sin, but Jesus frees us from sin's self-deceit. Or, sin makes us walk around in the dark. Jesus is night vision goggle. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to save us. The more we learn about how he saves us, the more we realize how deeply we need saving. So Father, as we keep growing in understanding that, help us never to, never to give up thinking that we're too bad, but to keep seeing how good Jesus is. Father, please help us to be alert to how easily we can deceive ourselves Sin always involves us deceiving ourselves, and so help us to hold on to Jesus tightly. Amen.